Hello and welcome to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast with me, Dr. Kat Arney. In this episode, we're hunting for the ghosts in our genomes, telling the story of the discovery of the double helix in Lego, and finding out how to argue with a racist. Before we start, just a reminder that you can find us on Twitter at geneticsunzip or by email podcast at geneticsunzip.com. Do ping us a tweet or shoot us an email. We would love to hear from you. Also, please do take a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts if that's how you're listening. It does something happy to that mysterious algorithm and it helps more people discover the show. Alternatively, you could just share a link on social media or simply tell a friend. It's all good and we really appreciate it. Thank you. Back at the end of October, I went to a fascinating meeting at the Wellcome Genome Campus in Cambridge, all about human origins and evolution. It was a mind-bending couple of days, listening to geneticists, anthropologists, evolutionary biologists, paleontologists and archaeologists, all the ologists, discussing the latest evidence and ideas around where human populations came from and how we've changed along the way. We've already heard from one of the people I spoke to while I was there, Professor Chris Stringer, in our recent episode about the March of Progress, one of the most iconic and misleading images in evolution. You can check out episode one of this latest series to hear it. As Chris explains, our family tree isn't a straightforward linear progression from ancient ape to modern human, but a complex, tangled web of interrelated and interbreeding species. One of the most compelling pieces of evidence for this story can be found in our own human genomes today, in the form of DNA sequences picked up from our ancient ancestors, the Neanderthals and Denisovans. But, as I found out when I spoke with Arun Davasala, a PhD student at the University of California, Los Angeles, there are other ancestral ghosts lurking in the modern human genome. A highly appropriate topic, given that I interviewed him on Halloween, the 31st of October. So the sort of main highlights of the past maybe 20 years of uh, genomics research has shown us that, you know, we have these Neanderthal populations that have split off from the modern humans, let's say about 600,000 years ago. And there was a sister population called the Denisovans, which uh, split off you know, about the same time. And what's interesting about these populations is that they have a lot of archaic uh, features. So they're very different from modern humans. And so one thing that we'd like to know is uh, you know, what makes them different. So how can you start comparing modern humans and ancient modern humans and these Denisovans and the Neanderthals? What kind of data can you get and look at? So what we can do is compare patterns in the data, patterns of mutations. We have models that tell us, you know, from generation to generation, if these populations, uh, you know, split at this time, it'll leave this kind of signature in the data. Okay, so if you look at their genomes, you can say if you separated this many hundreds of thousands of years ago, what we should end up now with is a pattern more or less like this. Right, exactly. And so we looked at some of this data in, in African populations, and what we found is that you know, the current models of human evolution that we have aren't able to explain the patterns that we're seeing. So this is like a ghost in the genome. So you've, you've got modern humans. We know that there is some Neanderthal and Denisovan DNA in there, but then there's like, there's something else. What is that? Right, yeah. So um, it looks like there's a lineage that splits off prior to uh, the Neanderthals and Denisovans splitting off. And it sort of remained in Africa and interbred with modern humans uh, sort of in the last 50,000 years. 
Hang on. So there was this other population of some kind of human that was around 50,000 years ago and interbreeding with us. Do we know anything about what they might have been like? Uh, so at this point, we don't. So we, we've been trying to sort of excavate modern human genomes and try to pull out the chunks of DNA that come from this population. And, you know, we, we have some sort of uh, statistical signals, but, uh, you know, understanding the actual biology, maybe the differences that this population had from uh, modern humans is still sort of a, a mystery. So we've got this DNA ghost, if you like, some DNA that, that is in our genomes today that has come from somewhere. Have you got any kind of top suspects looking at the fossils that are in Africa? So at this point, we, we don't. There, there are you know, quite a few fossils with a lot of uh, interesting sort of archaic features. But at this point, it's sort of unclear which one really uh, could be the population, and, and even if it's just one. So the signals that we find could actually be from multiple populations, and it's just that our modeling is sort of squishing it into one uh, sort of easy-to-model uh, situation. So also that means that you don't know if this was just one group of individuals that kind of came across the early humans were like, oh, let's have a go with them, <laughs> or, or whether it was kind of one individual or, or multiple. What, what do we know maybe about what might have gone on? So we know that the, uh, the contribution is uh, fairly substantial. So estimates of Neanderthal DNA in uh, Europeans is about 2% for comparison. And so here we're seeing about 11%. Whoa, so like one-tenth of the modern human genome is this ghost. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> that just blows my mind. Yeah, it's pretty, I think it's pretty surprising at face value, but then when you think about all of the different uh, sort of forms that have existed in Africa, all the fossils that we found, it paints a picture of a really, you know, diverse uh, landscape of populations, and, you know, it's clear that uh, this sort of interbreeding was happening all the time. And so I think, uh, you know, as we get more samples and as our methods get better um, at uncovering this stuff, um, we're going to find that, uh, you know, this number could increase. There could be more ghosts out there. There could be more ghosts. Happy Halloween. That's Arun Dervasila from UCLA with his scientific ghost story. For a field involving specimens that have been dead for millennia, human origin research is surprisingly fast moving. In an exciting plot twist, just a couple of weeks ago, scientists at Princeton University announced that they discovered traces of Neanderthal DNA in some modern African populations, publishing their findings in the journal Cell. We've put a link to the paper and some of the media coverage on the page for this episode at geneticsunzip.com. These results contradict the established out-of-Africa narrative that groups of ancient humans left Africa to spread across Europe and Asia and never looked back, instead arguing for more of a hokey-cokey-style in-out, in-out, shake-it-all-about kind of story. The reason for this complexity, as science writer and geneticist Adam Rutherford likes to argue, is that humans are horny and mobile. People don't stay in one place, and they aren't always that picky when it comes to getting into someone else's pants. Add up these effects over thousands and thousands of years, and it's easy to see why trying to understand and compare the genetics of modern populations is a challenging task. The truth is that the more we study human genomes around the world, the more diversity we find. 
But as Adam points out in his latest book, How to Argue with a Racist, we should be on guard against those who would wish to crudely slice this rich and complex tapestry of global human genetics for political ends. As a scientist, Adam studied at University College London, an institution with a long legacy of genetics, from the dark eugenics work of Francis Galton and his colleagues in the 19th century to modern cutting-edge genomics and evolutionary biology. Add to that his own mixed Anglo-Indian heritage, the massive growth in the popularity of direct-to-consumer ancestry testing and the worrying rise of hardline nationalist and racist narratives in political and public life in many parts of the world, and you've got a compelling reason to write a book that separates the facts of genetic diversity from divisive fiction. All these things suddenly coalesce. I guess they've been building for a long time, but they coalesce into a point where I was like, well, I can't not write this book now because we now have to seriously address what genetics does and doesn't say about human variation, about race, the history of race science, about eugenics, you know, easy stuff, really. <laughs> Just trivial things. Yeah. It has amazed me, really, in the past uh, couple of decades, how much we now know about the human genome. You know, 20 years ago, we thought there were 100,000 genes and the human genome was basically like six people. And now we're gathering thousands and thousands of genomes, going back through history, gathering archaic samples, really starting to dig into our human journey across the planet, the ancestors that we gained and lost and mated with along the way, and really understanding what is in the human genome and how it varies. So how has that knowledge then led to kind of confusion and, and wrongheadedness? What are some of the most common ways that this new knowledge is being twisted and abused? Yeah, I think your description is really, really accurate that um, humans over the last million years and more in the last 100,000 years, we do two things really well. We move and have sex. And admixture, so the, the... That's the technical term for bonking. Yeah, well, basically, gene flow events, introgression, it's all just sex. But it is a quintessential human characteristic that different groups of people over time that have been previously separated rejoin through sex, through gene flow events. And this concept, admixture, is just quintessentially human. So the idea of racial purity or separation of lineages of humans is, is not really in line with what we have now discovered, as you say, in the last 10, 20 years in the age of uh, both ancient genomics and just understanding our own genomes of, of extant, of living people better. And, and so we see that we are, uh, you know, we, we talk about family trees and phylogenies, which are sort of tree-based descriptions of evolution. And they're not, we're not a tree at all, right? I don't know whether we should completely retire the concept of a genealogical or phylogenetic family tree, but it doesn't describe what humans have done for the last 100,000 years, for the last 10,000 years, and indeed in our own family histories over, you know, a few generations so we've been using genetic techniques to understand more about the diversity of people. If we go back far enough, we all come from the same small groups of people and we all originally came out of Africa. So there's some confusion, though, about the kind of populations. I hear the word population structure and the kind of characteristics and genetic diversity. And then people say, well, well, that's race. How does this all match up and why do people want to make this such an important thing? This is why I think the history is very important. And I think, in general, scientists are not bad at knowing their own histories. But I've always been very interested in the history of genetics because it's short. You know, genetics is a subject which is only about 100 20 years old in any meaningful sense. 
But of course, what genetics is, is the study of inheritance and family trees and sex and those sorts of things, which people have been obsessing about for all of human history. So it's not like quantum physics in the sense that it, it has no relation to the experiential, right? You We've all got genes. We've all got human genomes. Exactly. And that means that we carry a lot of cultural and intellectual baggage about what genetics and inheritance means. And what's happened in the last 20 years is that many of those ideas about how inheritance works and how genetics works in general and how genealogy and family trees and how inherited family traits, characteristics are, are inherited, a lot of those things we've had to radically modify within the genetics community. You and I know this and many of the listeners who are geneticists will know this, that we no longer cling to ideas about, for example, you know, a single gene for a single characteristic and so on. So the transfer of that information from academia into the public domain, I think, has been a battle. And, you know, a lot of this is on me, because this <laughs> is my me job. me as well, yeah. yeah and and <laughs> you too. We failed. Um, you know, we spent 20 years trying to talk about these things. I, I don't think we really have failed. But I think we're contesting against forces which are culturally embedded for thousands of years. So ideas of racial purity or tribal identity or, you know, we're a very ethnocentric species. We like to identify with people who are similar to us in whatever the characteristic is. And so that might be football teams, or it might be class, or it might be geographically based, you know, if you happen to think that South London is better than North London. No, it's not. Well, it is, actually. Or that UCL is better than King's, which it is. It's not. (laughs) Both of those two things are absolutely fine. We're going to fall out over this. Anyway, with the advent of ancestry testing kits, which I've written about a lot and talked about a lot in the past, I get almost continuous emails from people telling me that they're descended from Vikings, white people. White people always want to know they're descended from Vikings. And that's fine because, A, Vikings were super cool, and, B, everyone in Europe is descended from Vikings. So you don't need to do an ancestry test to to demonstrate that. You can just ask me and I will look at you and say, you're descended from Vikings, well done. Now, whether that says anything about what your character is like, I find, you know, problematic. Everyone is descended from a very small population less than a few thousand years ago, and for Europe it is a thousand years ago. So that sense of identity that comes out of a misplaced understanding of genetic genealogy, I think is very potent, but I don't think it has any explicative power necessarily. Now, that's all trivial, you know, wanting to find out you're descended from Vikings is kind of fun, and then you tell people you're descended from Vikings. I don't know what you're meant to do with that information other than... Get a hat with horns on. Get it. They didn't have horns. Sorry, I can't let that pass. (laughs) Vikings didn't have horns on their hats. I learned that from Janina Ramirez, who got very cross with me when I suggested exactly the same thing. Um, but, you know, fa- fancy dress costumes yeah. aside, people, <laughs> people maybe want to find out about their, their ancestry and the journey that they, sure. they took through history to get here. But where I find it gets a lot more insidious is this kind of idea of categorization and sure. the kinds of traits and genetics that people use to divide up. And can you, like, explain a bit more about this whole idea of diversity and population structure? Because I, I've heard things like the people in two neighbouring villages in Mexico are more different than someone who's European, someone who's Chinese. I mean, how, how does this actually work when we dig into it? Right. Well, this is where the genetics becomes very complicated very quickly. And it's also where the history is important because you know, a very brief history of race goes something like this. 
humans are ethnocentric, humans are different from each other. As we go around the world, we encounter people who look different from each other. You've got Africa, which is the birthplace of us as a species. Then you've got not Africa, which is everyone else on Earth. And the reason I separate them like that is because there's more diversity within Africa, both phenotypically, both physically, which means you know our physical characteristics, and genotypically, which means how different we are in our genomes. There's more diversity in those two things within Africa than there is in the rest of the world put together. But evolution has deceived our eyes because the categorization tools that we tend to use, most obviously, are very visual, superficial characteristics such as pigmentation, such as skin color. And even though there is more variety in skin color within Africa than there is in the rest of the world put together, so that's relatively recent information, but that is factually correct, we very casually describe people as black, right? Now that's a social categorization which is meaningful and people understand, but scientifically it doesn't hold a lot of water. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't call people black, that is a socially accepted, if that is the socially accepted term that uh, black people want to use. But to lump together 1.3 billion people in Africa and the millions of people all over the rest of the world who are from recent African descent and have dark skin as one unit type of people is not reflected by the genetics that underlies pigmentation or the migratory journeys for the last million years that have seen the dispersal of people around the world. Now, in the 17th and 18th century where colonial expansion from Europe is occurring, the first attempts to categorize people, to apply a taxonomy to humans begins, mostly by European gentlemen scholars, many of whom didn't actually travel, right? Many of them did this from their armchairs in their, in their living rooms with reports back from the colonies or potential colonies about what people were like. And so at this point, we begin the sort of scientific attempts, or actually there are the pseudoscientific attempts in retrospect, but the scientific attempts to categorize people, and they are primarily done by pigmentation. So we say Africans are black people, Chinese or East Asians are yellow. This is Linnaeus's terminology. And there have been innumerable attempts by different people to form sharp boundaries of taxonomic categorizations of the people of the earth. There's never been any agreement on how many races there are. There's never been any agreement on what characteristics, sort of psychological and behavioral traits, are associated with those superficial physical traits such as, well, initially skin pigmentation and secondarily skull morphology, which comes a bit later in the sort of 18th century with Johann Blumenbach. But one thing was unanimous and universally agreed on in this era of taxonomy. The one thing that, was, that everyone thought was that white Europeans were the best. And it's, I know it sounds funny, but it, it oh, is... Oh, you know, we just make the rules. <laughs> so it, it, it is in all of those categorizations. Blumenbach was a little... He hedged his bets a, a little bit. Now, why this is important is not simply that it's pseudoscience because it's unevidenced and it's mostly just opinion based on very superficial characteristics. It's important for, another, for, for two reasons, really. One is that it's this, this concept of othering, right, which is a sociological concept, that you say we are one group and you, another group is another group. And not one of us. Right, so by othering another group, you separate them away from us, which makes 
subjugation more palatable. So if you're going to a country in order to colonize it, and you say, well, these people are not actually the same as us for the following reasons, they, have, they are physically different and they are behaviorally different, and in some cases, some of these people are arguing that they are a different species, at which point you can say, well, you know, th therefore, we can justify enslaving this nation or exploiting this, this country or their lands because they're not the same as us. Now, that, that is a sort of standard way of subjugating a people or invading a country. The second thing which I think is important to recognize is that the reason it's pseudoscience and the reason it's important to understand this history is because it is science or pseudoscience being marshaled, being co-opted into a political view, not the other way around, which is the way societies work better. We say what the science is, and then other people, not scientists, but society, the demos, hopefully informed, make decisions about what you do with that information. The history of race science is the other way around. It is political ambition and expansive political philosophies co-opting science, pseudoscience, in order to make the political machinations and maneuvers more palatable to the people. I think, and I argue in the book, that we're seeing some of those same patterns emerge in the 21st century with the application of modern, or the misunderstanding of modern genetics, especially direct-to-consumer genetics, to say the same things that we've been through four, three, two centuries ago. That actually you're reinforcing these essentialist characteristics of humans which aren't real, or identifying things which are within our genomes segregate by landmass or by population or skin color or whatever, and therefore don't represent the total amount of, of genetic diversity in, in a people, but are being used to say these people are inferior or superior, or that there are clear lines of racial delineation between people, and therefore by extension we can say, well, these people are not us. Words to heed from Adam Rutherford. His book, How to Argue with a Racist, is available now from all good bookshops, and, no doubt, it's annoying racists everywhere. This is Genetics Unzipped, the Genetic Society podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Genetics Unzip and online at geneticsunzipped.com. I don't know about you, but I love Lego, and I spent much of my childhood constructing strange creations out of the miscellaneous bricks that we'd collected over the years. Today's Lego sets are far more sophisticated and scientific, and my astronomically-minded partner has spent many happy hours putting together Lego versions of the Saturn V rocket, the Lunar Lander and the Mars rover. But what about Lego for us geneticists? Well, if student Daniel Cosrovinia has his way, we could soon be able to make our very own models celebrating the discovery of the DNA double helix. He's a student at King's College London, home to Maurice Wilkins Lab, where Rosalind Franklin and Ray Gosling carried out the crucial experiments that helped to crack the structure. So, when Daniel saw an exhibition of some of the equipment that Franklin used, he wanted to dig deeper. So as I continued my research and I learned more about the history and the people who were involved, I thought um, creating a Lego model of DNA would not only be very fun, which it was, but it would also inspire many young people and many uh, even not young people because everyone loves Lego, to pursue a career in science and to try to contribute to this beautiful field. And then when I learned more about the history and I um, 
discovered about Rosalind Franklin, who intrigued me most. I felt that this would be a very good way for people to recognize her more and for people in general to know about the efforts that led to the discovery of um, a very important piece of information that is now regarded as common knowledge. Just describe it to me because I think it's absolutely incredible. What does it look like? What does it show? And also, who's in it? Well, first of all, thank you for your compliment. And secondly, regarding the model itself, as best as I could, I um, tried to make it a real replica of the DNA molecule. It's a double helix with it turning one completely 160 degrees around itself. It has the base pairs um, all being connected to each other, the complementary pairs. And it also has the phosphate groups. The sugar groups were put as best as they could be because um, obviously, since this is a Lego model, the structure of the model also has to be taken into consideration. These were for the structure itself. Then uh, one interesting thing, uh, at first it was going to be only the structure, but then I thought to myself, why don't I incorporate some of the history um, with the structure as well? So um, beneath the entire structure, I uh, made it into a two-sided laboratory, with one side being the Franklin Wilkins lab, and the other side being the Watson Crick lab. These labs contain some of the um, most famous devices used for the discovery, such as two microscopes that um, Ross and Franklin used in the lab. And it also includes minifigures, which is a technical term for Lego people, of Rosalind Franklin, Morris Wilkins, James Watson, and Francis Crick. So those photons are also included in the Lego set. So now you've designed this model, what happens next? I know it's up on the, the Lego Ideas website. What do you need to make this a reality that people can actually buy and build themselves? Uh, whenever a model reaches 10,000 supporters, the Lego group, will consider those ideas to be made into uh, an official Lego set which can be bought in any of the stores around the world or even online. So right now I just need to get to those 10,000 supporters and I'm happy to say we've already got more than 1,000 so like there's 9,000 left to go. And how long have you got to get to that 10,000? Currently I have around 10 months. Excellent, so hopefully in about a year or so we'll come back to you and find out whether you hit your target. Uh, hopefully, yeah. Uh, hopefully by then it'll be in Lego stores. You can see pictures and a video of Daniel's model and find the link to vote for his idea on the page for this podcast at geneticsunzip.com or check our Twitter feed at geneticsunzip. And finally, it's time to round things off with a clip from the Heredity podcast, the Journal of the Genetic Society. Host James Bergen is running a series of interviews with the journal's editors to find out what makes them tick and, more importantly, extract some top tips for successfully publishing scientific papers. Here's his latest guest, Dr Mark Stift from the University of Constance, who's not only spent three years as an editor at Heredity, but has authored five papers in the journal to date. He explains what to look for when it comes to choosing where to submit your next scientific paper. I think everybody is you know, using impact factor as as a prime decision maker for where to submit. And I don't think I'm an advocate to abandon that, but I'm I'm an advocate to also look at the reputation of journals and to ask older colleagues which journals they just off the top of their heads know have been around for a long time and are signals of good quality science. So I think I'm an advocate of publishing in society journals, not only heredity, but I think in general, the the experience you get as an author from these journals, it's much more personal and you can get much 
better and potentially also honest feedback and you're supporting sort of the scientific community. You can get more of Mark's advice by listening to the full interview in the latest Heredity podcast. Just search for Heredity in your favourite podcast app or follow the link from the page for this podcast at geneticsunzipped.com. That's all for now. Next time, we'll be taking a look at the naming of nucleotides. In the meantime, you can find us on Twitter at Genetics Unzip. And please, please, please do take a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really does make a difference and it does help more people discover the show. Genetics Unzipped is presented by me, Kat Arney, and is produced by First Create the Media for the Genetic Society, one of the oldest learned societies in the world dedicated to supporting and promoting the research, teaching and application of genetics. You can find out more and apply to join at genetics.org.uk. Our theme music was composed by Dan Pollard. Our logo was designed by James Mayle. Transcription is by Viv Andrews. And audio production is by Hannah Varrell. Thanks for listening. And until next time, goodbye.